Good afternoon, everybody. It's great to be here. Great to be able to continue in this, uh, this amazing book, The Song of Songs. And um, I, think, I think what we've done for the past few weeks is taken quite a diversion. Um, it's not a diversion outside of the Bible. It's a diversion within the Bible. But it's a diversion that has taken us into imagery and into beauty and to, into aspects of art, art in the written word and what it says to us. And I think, I think in lots of ways, and any, anyone who knows me reasonably well knows that I am a bit of a techie. I, I, I do love tech, but we've lost something with tech, I think. We've lost the ability to pause and to ponder and to observe something that is still, something that is inanimate. If, not, if that's a picture, if that's a set of words, it really, it really jumped out at me, the inability for our society, I guess, these days, to get excited about, about the journey of a poetic story. And it jumped out when I was reading the reviews at the end of Happy Valley, Series 3, Episode 6, if you're catching up on it, there's no spoilers here, you don't have to worry, I don't think. Um, but but the, the, last, the last scene, which is pretty breathtaking, includes somebody uh, who threatens, pours petrol over themselves and threatens to set themselves on fire, which seemed part of the story and then you read the reviews and there were people who were genuinely so unbelievably ex excited because the first scene of series one, chapter one, no, series one, episode one, it was a film, wasn't it? Series one, episode one begins with somebody pouring petrol over themselves and threatening to set them alight. And like lots of occasions, Sally Wainwright has created this, this incredible visual bookend to the story. It's as if she was saying, I want you to know that this is the end. It started here and it ended here. And I'm going to give you a visual clue. We miss those visual clues so much because we are so passive in just soaking up the ideas. I want you to take you back to about 1400, 14, 1420s to 1450s and the artist Botticelli. He paints a, a picture of Venus and Mars. And for us, well, us illiterate, particularly me, some of you might be profoundly artistically literate, but he paints a picture of uh, the two gods, Venus and Mars, Reclining. In the background is myrtle trees, which are sacred to Venus, and they are a Roman symbol of love and a Hebrew symbol of marriage. There's wasps flying around Mars, which are symbols of the Vespucci family, who were patrons of the peace. And at the same time, they are symbols of the stings of love. 
The fauns and satires who are playing with Mars's weaponry are symbols of wildness and male sexuality. There's hints of red that heighten the feeling of love. And the pearl-studded brooch on Venus's chest represents chastity. See, what Botticelli was doing in that picture is he's painting a portrait of idealized and appropriate marriage relationship in the society of the day. He's, he's communicating what it is to be a wife, what it is to be a husband. And the observers of that piece of work would have been far more literate, way more literate than us. I, I, I can, well, you can see the way I read it, that that's a good bit of Googling. It's not me looking at Botticelli's Venus and Mars and, and pulling out all of the ideas. It's recognizing that I cannot read that painting in the way that it would have been read in the 1400s. But actually what it was doing is it, it was trying to communicate a message Maybe to those who couldn't read, but certainly to those who were observers of the Vespucci patronage, the families, the observers of those who had put the money into painting this piece of work, that we want to say something about our marriage. We want to say something about what is right society-wise. How do we get to that? How do we... How do we imbibe that kind of message? The only way that we imbibe that kind of message is by sitting down in front of the painting with an understanding and then pondering and thinking about every element of the painting that Botticelli has, has placed before us. And it's when we do that that we understand that there is a message deeper than clever brush strokes, deeper than the genius that was Botticelli, deeper than the, the classical Renaissance kind of growth of interest in ancient Rome and the Roman and Greek gods. That was not the point of his piece of work. There was an interest. But the real thing was to say to our society in the 1400s, this is how to live. I think when we come to Song of Songs, and this is a particularly kind of packed chapter, we look at it and we think, what, what do we do with this? And so what I want to do is just pause and allow us to just for a few minutes just, just look at what is going on. Think about what is being said. But critically, and this is what we've got, I think we've got to do. And this is a debated point. Let me go back a step because this is incredibly important. Do we understand Botticelli just by observing? Well, not without a great deal of understanding. But when we've got the understanding, we realize this. Botticelli himself 
is trying to say something. And, that, and therefore there is a constraint on what we are able to bring to our interpretation of that painting. There is a way in which we are constrained, I believe, because Botticelli is trying to say something to us, first and foremost. When we come to the Bible, that is what is going on. God, first and foremost, is seeking to say something to us. He's seeking to say, through this beautiful word picture, this piece of literary art, he's wanting to say something. He is the first author. He is the first communicator of a message. And therefore we are constrained. Where do we go for our understanding? I think we go to the rest of the Bible to understand how to come to terms with what the writer, the communicator God, is seeking to say in this. And that's what I want us to do this afternoon as we come to this particular chapter. I'm going to pick out five things. One we've already mentioned on a number of occasions, but we do it again at this point. The first thing we see is this, and it is He. He speaks. He the King. He the voice, the speaker of God, if you like, in this text. And the first thing that we see is He takes a complete journey of all of her. Look at verse 1. How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. How graceful legs are like your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hands. I, I think. Oh, and we yes, let's conclude it. Let's see where we end up in verse five. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like royal tapestry. The king. The king is held captive by its tresses. He starts at the feet. He ends at her hair. I think that that is very deliberate. It's very deliberate. He's not looking her from the top down and making a personal assessment of her, I don't think. I think he's starting at the bottom of the, the picture right down at the feet and carrying up to the point where they are in communication with each other. You know, I cannot communicate much to you looking at your feet. Maybe I can. Maybe I can say I'm not interested. Or maybe I'm so, I could say, they're really cool shoes. <laughs> but I communicate a lot when I catch your eye. And the amazing thing that we see here that we've said time and time again that what God is wanting to say in this communication is this. I will pause at every part of you. I will take every aspect of you in and I will find it beautiful. 
I will find it beautiful. It's not a rush. And it's not a picking out of the best bits. If there's one thing that is almost like a, a banner, in fact, we read that his, his, his banner over me is love. Almost a banner over the whole of this book is this. For those of us who, who know and have a relationship with the one who writes this by the inspired Word of God, we read this. That the King, He looks over you from bottom to top in every little detail. And He loves you. He loves you. He finds every part of you beautiful. I find it just a fascinating and contrasting picture to, to the way we think about ourselves in 21st century Western thought. Our Instagram generation takes a picture of ourselves and changes the bits that we don't like. It's called filters. We change the bits that we don't like so that we become something that we like. And God says to you and to me, I see you unfiltered. And I love you. I see you unfiltered. And every part of you is beautiful to me. We're going to come back to that at the end of this talk. Because I think that that is an incredible thing to say. And also it seems an impossible thing for God to say. So we're going to come back to that. The first thing that we see, he starts at the bottom, he gets to the top, and every part is beautiful. The second thing we see is this. And this is where we start to, to touch into imagery, which, which when we read it in the context of the rest of the Bible, starts to ping little thoughts into our mind. The second thing is this. Your beauty reminds me of the produce of the land. You see that? In verse 2 and 3. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. That is bizarre imagery. It's strange imagery. Unless we see and we understand that there is a way in which there is a double message that is going on here. When, when the, the lover, when he looks on her and he sees her beauty, there is a sense in which it is connected. It, it springs in his mind something of the treasure and beauty and produce of the land that his lover is in. In other words, she is in a context. He finds her in a place that is fertile and flourishing. That is an idea that runs right the way through the Bible. The idea of being in a land which is fertile and flourishing. If we look 
right there. Let, let's just take a whistle top store. Whistle stop top. One of those whistle stores. Some things. Let's just do it quick. <laughs> let's take a quick look through the story of the Bible. It starts in a place of flourishing beauty and fertility. It ends up again with God intervening in a place where the, re the story really takes a turn when we see famine and we see hope in Egypt, a land with plenty. And so there is hope and there is security in plenty. And then it becomes problematic and they end up in the wilderness where there is no hope, but they are promised a land of flourishing and plenty. And they find finally that God's promise and faithfulness brings them back to a land of plenty and flourishing. What's underneath the idea of a land of flourishing? Underneath it is God's promise to do what He said. I'll take you back there. And so, intermingled, kind of like the myrtle tree that speaks of uh, of marriage in the Botticelli, intermingled with the words that we find in this chapter is the idea that God is saying, you remind me of the promises of a fertile land. You remind me of what I promised to do. And then that fertile land imagery, that fertile land idea carries on right the way through, and, and we'll jump back later to a point where it's really dramatic, but in Galatians chapter 5, the idea of a fertile land, we find, is describing the land that we dwell in as believers, in Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, the land that we dwell in becomes a land that changes us and becomes what? Fruitful. That's the purpose. That's the idea that flows right the way through the Bible is that, that God says to His people, I'm going to provide for you. And it will be in a land that is fruitful. And then He says in Galatians chapter 5, He says to you and me who no longer seem to need a land that is fruitful in the same way as the ancient Hebrews, He says the land that you dwell in is a fruitful land. And it's a fruitful land empowered by My Spirit. So the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness and self-control. It is those things that makes you prosper. You prosper in My land. Because when I love you, when I look at you and find you beautiful, it's because I see the fruit. Do you see what the, the ancient writer is saying here? I look at you and your navel is like a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. That is, that is connecting two ideas. It's saying, I look at you and I find flourishing provision. What is appealing about you? And then he says to you and me, 
what I'm going to do for you. If you trust in me, if you place your hope in me, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take you. I'm going to dwell inside of you. And little by little, step by step, tiny little increments, what's inside of you is going to become fruitful. So your tendency to be one thing is going to be turned around so that it becomes something else instead. So your harshness becomes less harsh, less harsh and becomes more gentle. So your unkindness becomes more kind. That's the flourishing of the land. It's the love of God on you that places on you and places on me a change. Where the flourishing of the land speaks to you and speaks to me. The third thing that we see is that his beauty reminds him of the geography of the land. Look at verse 4 and 5. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are like the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabbim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon looking towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. You ain't ever going to win somebody round by saying that their nose looks like a tower. Never. In fact, the other day, I was on a... I have a couple of screens in, in my office at home and um, I was on one of those mi online meetings and I'm doing some work while I'm on the meeting. I didn't realize that the camera was on my laptop instead of the camera on my big screen and actually they had a side profile view of me and I'm thinking that that's a tower, that, that, that's heading towards tower. But if somebody said that your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, I wouldn't be too chuffed. but not to the writer. Because to the writer, the geography of the land is profoundly important. What do I look at you and see? I look at you and see that you are placed in my land. You're placed in my context. You're placed in my security. You are in my place. You are in my provision. One of the things that we see in the Bible going on through the story of the Old Testament, where they take the land, we see this. We see the land being apportioned out so that it belongs to them. A people who were disjointed, a people who had no place, now have a place. And the same goes for you and me in our relationship with God. We live in a world where we can feel so disjointed. We live in a world where we can so often not really feel at home. Not really know our place. Not really know where we belong. And the love of God says this. When I look at you, I am reminded that you're in my land. It's called the kingdom of heaven in the New Testament. It's called a place which exists in spiritual terms for God's people and one day will exist in physical terms for God's people 
because we belong in a real place. Number four, we have an an intense sexuality in the context of a land flowing with milk and honey. Look at verse 7 and 9, 7 to 9. It's intense. Your stature is like the palm, as your breasts like clusters of fruit. I will say I will climb the palm tree, I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like the clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, your mouth like the best wine. May the wine go straight to my beloved, flowing gently over lips and teeth. It is intimate and it is intense and it is centered around grapes. Why? Why grapes? Because in Numbers chapter 13, God's people are told while they're wandering around the desert, don't plant vines. Don't plant vines. Because you can only get grapes when you plant vines. That is not a genius gardener. It's a statement of simple fact. You can't get grapes unless you plant vines, but you can't get grapes unless you plant vines and hang around. And God is saying, my intense relationship with you is not yet ready. It's not here. I'll tell you when you can plant vines. What's the purpose of this picture where he's using grapes? He's saying this, we have found our place of intimacy. It's now. You've got grapes because you've planted your vines. Because we're here now. We've sung some amazing songs this afternoon. <laughs> and some of those songs just touched thoughts in my mind, and we'll, we'll look at it in a minute, of how amazing it is what God has done to find a place where we are ready for relationship with Him. This together idea, this idea that we are intimate with Him. The final bit, and we won't go through it deeply. We'll, we'll skim over this. But think about this as you go and read this section maybe over this coming week. Verse 9 to 13, they go out into the land together to do what? To share their relationship with others. It's what they do. Let's go into the villages. Let's go and see. I I heard a little snigger because mandrakes appear in here. I'm pretty sure that's a Harry Potter um, reference. It's not. It was before Harry Potter and it's a good thing. Not the bad thing that mandrakes are, I think. There's a point here where the two of them are saying this is not intimate just for us, but it's intimate to be shared. It's why we, are, why we are here today. Because we will never truly enjoy the full 
beauty of relationship with God alone. And I can say that with absolute confidence because the storyline of the Bible takes us to a point where we really are together. We're not going to be on an island enjoying God by ourselves in eternity because there's no sea. <laughs> We're going to be together. And when I wind you up in this world, you really don't want to spend time with me in this world. I'm going to be sorted out so that you can spend time with me and enjoy my company. And you're going to be sorted out so that you can spend time with me and my company. But together is not the purpose. Together looking outside of us at the King who is all the glory in Emmanuel's land is the purpose of the journey. This imagery is beautiful. But it's dramatic in the Bible. But it's fundamental to the storyline. And it finds its ultimate resonance where? In Jesus. Why Jesus? Because He very, very deliberately said, I am your provision. He said, I am your provision. All the way through the Old Testament, we've been talking about provision for the, from the land. And then, in John chapter 3 and verse 35, He declares this, I am the bread of life. I'm who you feed on. I am the one who will satisfy you. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. What was the beauty of the land? That you'll never go hungry. Every season is going to bring its fruit. It's a land that grows great stuff. They came back out of the land. Joshua's spies carrying a huge bunch of grapes carried on a pole. Why? Because the land is fruitful. And then Jesus says, it's only ever a picture. Because I'm your food. Feed on me and you will never go hungry. Because really deep down, it's not physical hunger that's the most devastating thing that humanity can face. It's spiritual hunger. That's the thing that kills us for eternity. Physical hunger can kill us Physically, spiritual hunger can kill us eternally. And so he says, feed on me and you will never go hungry. And then he says this in chapter 15 of John. He says this, I'm the vine. I'm the vine and you're the branches. And if you remain in me and I in you, you will... You you will bear much fruit. Where do we get grapes? From the branches that are attached to the vine and there's the fruit. And Jesus is saying this simply, just graft yourself into Me. Graft yourself into Me, the vine, and the fruit that you will bear will be rich. 
Because apart from me, you can do nothing, he says. Because Jesus is both the provider of the feast and the feast itself. Isn't that an amazing thing? There are two, there were a few words that we sang this afternoon that I just want to. I'm I'm terrible, as you know, at remembering words, so I I just wrote them down. Well, I copied and pasted them down. Jumped onto Google and Googled the lyrics so that I had them spat on. But there were two songs, one that we sang this afternoon and one that we sing as well that, that joined in my mind that reminds me of the great power of Jesus to be both the provider of the feast, and the feast itself. And it's this. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. The buried body began to breathe. Out of the silence, the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me. The roaring lion. I love that idea. We've got a picture of Jesus as gentle and beautiful and He roars out of the grave. He roars out of the grave. He crushes death. It's not a kind of cloying, fingering scrape out of a tough time. It's a roar of victory. But there's another song that we sing, and I I don't think there is... I think it's a beautiful picture. I don't think there's anything biblical that absolutely captures it, but I think it's probably true. Because all all of heaven was observing the scene of the garden with Jesus buried. Jesus buried... Jesus dead, and then he roars out of the grave. I love this. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Then on the third, on the third at break of dawn, the Son of Heaven rose again. Oh, trample death, where is your sting? The angels roar. For Christ the King. Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, roars out of the grave. But as the news of that rippling through heaven, the angels roar. A triumphant, victorious roar. Because this is victory. And therefore, and because of His victory, And we said we'd come back to this. He can look you up and down. See the reality. And find you and me beautiful. Because all of the filth that we know is there is left behind in the grave that He roared out of. That's the beauty of the Gospel. That's the amazing power of the Gospel. That's the beauty of the pictures that this piece of art portrays to us.